Adoption When in April of 1970, Billy Graham held a revival campaign in Germany, the Hamburg Church Monthly Viewpoint carried both pro and con articles on Graham. The critical article made a distinction between Luther's doctrine of justification by faith and Graham's use of the same doctrine. If you only want to have the change of heart, so Graham teaches, according to Bern Deibner, you can have it, and everything is well between God and you. And he continues, Luther's by grace alone means more to me than Graham's by free decision of the will alone. Graham, so he maintains, just does not know how much separates him from Martin Luther. This criticism points up an important fact. If God is the universal father of all mankind, and all men are natural sons of God, men have a natural relationship with God which cannot be entirely severed or broken. They can always choose to return home when it suits them, because God is by definition the ever-loving, ever-waiting father. The return then is, in Graham's terms, an act of faith that there is something better at home which, by free decision of the will, they choose to return to. Such a theology can have a modernist or fundamentalist version, but in either case, it is a denial of the sovereign predestinating God and an affirmation that man's free will is ultimate. It holds that man's supposedly sovereign free will can open or bar the door to God, that Christ cannot enter into man's heart unless man lets him in. In such a theology, the doctrine of adoption can have little or no place. Chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession is on adoption. All those that are justified God vouchsafeth, in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number, and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Like justification, adoption is an objective fact, a change in the status of man affected by God's sovereign grace. According to Webb, Justification is that act of grace whereby we sinful subjects of God's government are received into the number of and given a right and title to all the privileges of the kingdom of God. Adoption is that act of grace whereby we fallen sinners are received into the number of and are given all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. The one terminates upon the servile relation, the other terminates upon the filial relation. The one restores citizenship, the other to sonship. In the fall, the sinner not only lost the rights and the footing of a child, but he lost also the heart and the spirit of a child. That is, he lost at once his filial position and his filial nature. He now stands in need of some scheme for regaining both, his filial status and his filial spirit. Regeneration is that act of saving grace which, at least incipiently, reimparts to him his lost filial disposition while adoption is that act of grace which restores him to his filial standing. By the one, he is given the heart of a child. By the other, he is given the rights of a child. Both are unspeakably important. To have sonship as a law right and prerogative on the one hand, and to have an appropriate filial disposition to correspond to the legal status. So, while adoption coincides with justification at one point and with regeneration at another, because the scheme of grace, however analyzed in thought, 
is in strict reality one and indivisible, it is eminently helpful in the comprehension of the scheme of salvation to treat adoption as a separate article of the Christian faith. The theological aspects of the doctrine are very important, but they are not a concern here, except that they undergird the psychological implications. Adoption means that our relationship to God is not only on a law basis, the need for obedience, but also on a family basis, a personal and loving one. The two go together. The more authority and obedience there is in a loving family, the greater the love as well as the obedience and the authority. Virtues feed on one another and grow the stronger for it. Whereas loneliness and alienation mark the humanist, the believer, by his adoption, has an immediate relationship with God and a relationship with other believers in Christ. The desolating loneliness of humanism, which seeks by noise and clowning to drown the flood of isolation, gives way in Christ to a new creation. In this new creation, St. Paul declared, All things are yours, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23 This means heirship. To be an heir in Christ is to be a blessed possessor of all things in time and in eternity. It means the realization that this earth was created as man's area of dominion under God and is to be restored to that dominion by joint heirship in Christ. It means an eternal destiny which is beyond the imagination of man and yet is the calling of his whole being and the destiny of his every moment. Our lives are then tied to more than ourselves. For humanistic man, this sense of life and purpose, transcending the individual while fulfilling him, is an alien thing, which is dimly pursued in endless humanitarian activities and never realized in any true sense. It is the baffling quality which the humanist notes in the peasants of old Europe and cannot understand. An observer at the Second Balkan War in 1913 reported the death of a peasant soldier at the gate of the monastery of St. Joachim. His story was soon told. He was a Bulgarian soldier struck by a Turkish bullet near the spine and paralyzed. Some peasants had found him in a field, and filled with pity had brought him to where he lay, so that at least he should not die alone. Peasants are always kind. Those that had done this charitable deed were of no special race. Although their lives were hard, they had not lost their human sympathies, even in time of war. A woman brought a pillow for his head, a monk knelt at his other side, repeating words that solaced dying men. And then he spoke. The voice, though weak, rang clear. In a hushed silence, it gave the final message of a man whose earthly course was run. Neither the woman nor the priest had touched the peasant's heart. His thoughts were far away, but not with wife or children, nor did the welfare of his soul trouble his dying moments. He had a farm in the Maritza Valley, not far from Philippolis. There he had spent his life and lavished all his love and care. To him, that strip of land was very dear, and dying, he remembered it, to give some last instructions for the next autumn sowing. For this peasant, the land was his calling under God, and like his family before and after him, he belonged to the land even as the land belonged to him. There was thus, even in his death, that lack of self-consciousness which has also characterized many Christian martyrs. St. Paul spoke of adoption and heirship in Romans 8, 14-17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. St. Paul here calls believers the sons of God, not children, implying the higher and more mature and conscious member of God's family. See Galatians 4, 1-6. Christ is heir of all things, Hebrews 1, 2. In Hebrew law, the firstborn received a double portion. By the Roman law, the share of the firstborn was no greater than that of the other children. And the New Testament sets forth this view, making the redeemed equal to Christ, verse 29, and Christ's possession theirs, 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23, John 17, 22. In the joint heirship, we must not bring out this point, that Christ is the rightful heir who shares his inheritance with the other children of God. It is as adoptive children that they get the inheritance, and Christ is so far only the means of it, as he gives them power to become sons of God, John 1, 12. If at least we are suffering with him, that we may also be glorified with him. I.e., if, provided that, we are found in that course of participation in Christ's sufferings, whose aim and end, as that of his sufferings, is to be glorified as he was, and with him. As Haldane noted, formerly, in their unregenerate state, those to whom Paul wrote had the spirit of slaves. Now they had the spirit of sons. It is important to examine the meaning of the spirit of bondage or slavery. The common melodramatic opinion of slavery is that it means brutal punishment and exploitation. Clearly, such things exist, especially in the slave labor camps of the Soviet Union. They have also existed in times past. Where slaves are state-owned, the state uses them ruthlessly and brutally, seeking maximum results with minimum costs. Since the state's slaves are prisoners of war, or its own citizens whom it has sentenced to slavery, they are easily replaced. Thus, whereas the Soviet Union does not now have a supply of German prisoners of war, it does have its citizens, and the slave labor camps never lack a supply of workers for the jobs at hand. This is not the kind of slavery Paul had in mind, but rather privately owned slaves, and it was to the spirit of such slaves that he preferred. The Old Testament law referred to slavery as a voluntary servitude, where, except for captives of war and criminals making restitution, a slave was free to leave at any time. Such slaves were men seeking refuge from the world of freedom and responsibility. They preferred security to liberty, because liberty meant troubles and possible losses, whereas servitude meant cradle-to-grave care. A telling illustration of such slavery comes from Esed Bey's account of the abolition of slavery in the Caucasus, after the conquest of that area by Tsarist Russia. The Russian viceroy called in the Caucasian chiefs and ordered the abolition of slavery. He was surprised at the ready cooperation he received. The resistance came from the slaves, who protested, Slavery is our sacred right. Many of us are of the hereditary nobility, and some of us are priests. The Tsar should have a respect for the rights of the native nobility. A commission was appointed to investigate the matter. The material which this commission assembled brought some amazing facts to light. The house slaves were indeed members of the oldest aristocratic families in the land. Centuries ago, an impoverished member of the family had sold his freedom to some prince or other, whereby the rights and duties of the new slave and his descendants were exactly prescribed. The slaves were only obliged to do the work which had been done by the first of their line, and for this they were maintained by their masters all their lives, and in certain circumstance they were rewarded with presents. In the course of time, it was the princes who had become impoverished and the aristocratic slaves who increased in the most devastating fashion. It thus came about that many a slave owner had to expend his whole income in supporting the descendants of his original slave, 
If the first of them had been a cook or a groom, all his descendants, of their number increased with the passage of time to dozens, could be nothing else but cooks or grooms. One slave owner with three horses had to maintain thirty grooms, who lived in his own house and demanded presents from him. Another, who was living from hand to mouth himself, had at his disposal twenty cooks, and it never occurred to a single one of them to do anything but lounge about in the kitchen. All the slaves had valid documents in their hands, which protected their position, and they regarded this attempt to free them as a brutal injustice and violation of their ancient privileges, whereas for most of the owners, the riddance of their slaves meant bliss unheard of. Not all slave owners have had such unfavorable conditions, but the mark of a true slave, the spirit of slavery, is precisely that which Essid Bate described. The slaves of the Caucasus were some of the oldest aristocracy. Today, many of the oldest aristocracy of the West, major capitalists, workers, and farmers, are alike infected with the spirit of bondage or slavery, which has always a preference for security as against freedom, and the certainties of slavery as against the risks of liberty. Fear is the mark of a slave, and ultimately his fear is a fear of life and its problems, and a search for the womb-like security he imagines slavery to be. The slave has the backward look, the orientation to the past, and an oblivion to the future because he has none. True slavery is of the spirit, and it is a flight from life. When the spirit of slavery, the fear of freedom and responsibility, characterizes a people, it is absurd to hope for relief by political action. Where people are unregenerate, they will be possessed by a spirit of slavery, and they will create a slave society. Call it socialism, communism, a welfare economy, fascism, Nazism, or what you will. The fallacy of political conservatives is that they put their hope in politics and thus neutralize effective action by bypassing biblical faith. St. Paul said, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, Romans 8.15, and the word fear is in Greek phobos, which in origin meant flight, and then that which causes flight. The fear of which St. Paul speaks is a fear or flight from God. Those whose spirit is marked by slavery are in flight from God and from their responsibility to God. They are also in flight from themselves, because the witness of God is written into the fabric of their being and in all creation. This fear, phobos, is not the same as eulabia, fear, meaning caution, reverence. The spirit of slavery which fears God and is in flight from God, life, and all reality plunges headlong into a dream world where it hopes to find escape in a universe of its own creation. In the regenerate man, however, this spirit of bondage is replaced by the spirit of adoption, which is received, i.e. comes as a gift of God's grace. The adoption into sonship is by God's grace through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit within man. Our adoption is not yet complete, according to St. Paul, for we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.23 The full legal and physical fact of adoption comes with the resurrection of the body. For this fullness, we have a deep psychological need and hunger. This gives to the man of faith a God-directed, future-oriented perspective. He is a citizen of the new creation, of which Jesus Christ is the firstfruit, 1 Corinthians 15.20. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, or more accurately, a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He has an old world dying around him, and a new world coming into birth on all sides. Whatever the problems the old world confronts him with, he can always rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4 because he knows the certainty of the new world's triumph. 
Every day, men are reborn into that new creation, and every day, reconstruction goes on in terms of it. The spirit of bondage or slavery is the spirit also of sin and death, so that it is also termed the bondage of corruption, from which we shall be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans 8.21. The word translated as corruption can also mean destruction, so that the state of depravity is the slavery to corruption or destruction. In Romans 8.14, we are told that all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The word sons is used to indicate maturity. Such persons as are led by God's Spirit are not children, but rather maturing and growing persons. The word sons is replaced by children in verses 16, 17, and 21, and sons used in verse 19. The difference is of interest. In the first instance, we are children in relationship to God, by contrast to His awesome majesty and sovereign grace. In the second, we are children in the sense of heirship together with the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God and the firstfruit of the new creation. A priority and seniority gives Christ the title of Son and us of children as a contrast. The fullness of the new creation will see the revelation of the sons of God, verse 19, in their maturity. Third, because our glorious liberty in all its fullness is still future, yet present in its partial sense, we are children in our experience of that liberty and are so-called. We shall grow and mature in our realization of that liberty. The mind of modern humanism has been described as the disinherited mind, homeless like Cain, even in its home, a wanderer driven by sin and guilt, and a stranger to all things. The adopted sons of God are not disinherited, they are heirs. They are not strangers or foreigners to this world, although they are pilgrims in it. They can sing with certainty on their pilgrimage that this is my father's world. The hand of the disinherited is raised against all men, whereas the heir carries the good news of a rich estate to all men. The disinherited mind is at war with the estate, and he seeks to destroy it. Even when he holds possession of the world briefly, he knows he shall be dispossessed, and so he guts what he holds as a pillager and a plunderer. Only in the hands of the heirs can this world or the world to come ever flourish. For the world to come of the disinherited is hell itself, and their self-created environment of the world they now live in is a suburb of hell. The heirs, as citizens of the new creation, make of time itself an outskirt of heaven.